begun. Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, joins me. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including every one of our Hillsdale dialogues dating back many years now, and many online courses, and many important pieces of information and abilities to start charter schools. Whatever you need, you can find at hillsdale.edu. And I hope they have podcasts galore coming out of that school now. I'm not sure that they're caught up on that. But one of the things you will see is a, uh, a course on the founding, and I'm not sure that the Anti-Federalists get their due. We closed last week talking about the convention of the states met in Philadelphia and came up with the Constitution in something of a sleight of hand move by Hamilton, Madison, and some other intriguers, barely. And I guess the first three minutes, Dr. Arn, you have to tell us, how did they pull off that? How did Madison and Hamilton pull off the draft of what would become the Constitution that was submitted to the states for ratification? Uh, well, uh, there was a whole bunch of brilliant people gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 in the summer. And uh, Hamilton and Madison were the prime movers. They had to have George Washington, and they got him. That was hard. He almost backed out. And so he brought the prestige and the trust, and then they had a plan. And the plan, by the way, there, there were a variety of plans, and of course there was in the middle of the Constitutional Convention a great compromise. Uh, but that great compromise, which was both the small states and the large states would have uh, representation of their various strengths, right? So the small states are all, all the states are equal in the Senate, and, and, uh, at the, at the net, at the, and then New York is... Massachusetts and Virginia are going to have a lot more representatives in the House because they got a lot more people. And so they, they came together over that. And the, 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 the problem that they were grappling with in making what they called the Great Compromise in the Constitutional Convention to have, have one House represent the states and one House represent the people, that's the same problem that's apparent in these Anti-Federalist versus Federalist papers. And and they uh, and so, yeah, they've got they they. Uh, another reason this all worked, because you have to remember, almost everybody in the Constitutional Convention and all the ones who stayed to the end agreed on this thing from large states and small states, and they all went and advocated the passage of the Constitution in the ratification conventions in the states, and so a consensus was reached. And, and, and one of the things that drove that was the country was in a god-awful mess. Uh, it, the British were uh, impinging on our territory. They were uh, f- flouting the Treaty of Paris of 1783 that settled the revolution and the provisions in it that were to the advantage of the United States. And they were, and, and they were uh, debtors' riots and inability to collect mortgages and insurrections going on all over the Union, especially in Massachusetts. And so 
all of this is laid out in a short, wonderful document called Vices of the, of the Political System of the United States, written by James Madison. And that document, too, was a consensus among the, uh, among the delegates. In fact, if you read the Anti-Federalist Papers, uh, they, too, admit that big changes are necessary. This is just too much. Is and and I, I want people to understand, it's also a gathering of talent in a unique period of time with sustained patience and the ability to, and Ben Franklin is there, George, I mean, it's, it's really quite a remarkable thing that happens. And the Enlightenment is at full flood tide in Philadelphia in 1787. These are learned people, and they are deeply instructed in the ways of Republican theory of Montesquieu and Locke. They are, they are immersed in Roman history. They know they're Greeks. And for a bunch of rubes living across the ocean from the old European aristocracy, they sure did have a lot of brains, Larry Arn. Oh, man. And, you know, just think what it would be like to argue in that company. And see, Madison, who's my favorite, uh, well, Washington, of course, but... Um, he, he, you know, over and over, he doesn't get his way. Madison and Hamilton, you know, who are there, especially Hamilton. Hamilton is a sparkling talent, right? He's just a show pony. He arrests attention. He's awesome. And, uh, and so they went with a plan that said that the federal government should be permitted to legislate in all cases whatsoever. And that's, that's language from, from the, from the, the British heritage, it was in the Declaratory Act that so annoyed the colonists in the steps to the American Revolution. So they wanted a federal government that could do whatever it wanted. Uh, under, you know, sort of like having, you mentioned it last week, a common law power. The, co- yes. the common law in British history is a great treasure, and it's mostly judge-made rulings over dec- centuries. But what it says is there's a general right in the government, authority in the government to legislate for the health, safety, and general welfare of the people. And that means anything that fits in that, they can do. And, uh, and that is not how the Constitution comes out. And, of course, if you read the Federalist Papers, you will see that the most eloquent arguments made about that are made by Hamilton and Madison. Well, I think... Uh, when I wrote you to set this up, I said, I think Federalist 10 may be the greatest essay ever written upon rereading it. I, I probably first realized that in 1974 when uh, Alan Keyes was my tutor for the, the freshman government class leading us through these things and uh, explaining why it was so brilliant. But the, your reader begins with Brutus, and I think that's fair, and I think he's sincere, and there are people who are greatly worried about one thing, which is that their liberty will be impinged upon. Yeah, you always say we are a freedom people. And you start with Robert Yates, you being whoever selected this set of, of papers. And last week you said, you know, you, uh, you would show why my argument is pitiful. I think Mr. Yates is talking about 2021 and that State of the Union two weeks ago or, or addressed to Congress. Because he is predicting everything that has come to be, which is a, a, the, that which can be obtained by people in power will be sought by people in power. Yeah, and that's true. And here's why that's a pitiful argument. <laughs> he, uh, he also explains why that's going to happen. 
and that's not why it happened. And also, it took 200 years for it to happen, which means 200 years of successful constitutional history unmatched in human history. And so, you know, to understand why the government is centralized, it's not because, as he said, what happened was an ideology has grown up. It dominates the government today and the intellectual classes. We have a ruling class in America today. And they're all driven by the idea that expertise is the title to rule, not equal individuals. But you know what Yates found, Larry Arn, that 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 he diagnosed. It was sort of like a surgeon way early in 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 an illness. He saw it. It's the necessary and proper clause, and he he dialed right into that. And he said, "Look here, they've given themselves the right to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper, and there is no limiting that. And there was limiting that for 150 years. And then FDR blew it up by threatening the court. And now Joe Biden's going to throw it up, blow it up again by threatening the court. It's amazing." your argument. You're, you actually claim that everybody who said that one of these days there'd be a great world war, and <laughs> whoever lived. And, and uh, so that, that is, in fact, not how the, the union has been corrupted. It's been corrupted by two things above all, both explicitly forbidden in the Constitution. And one of them is the direct election of senators took the state legislature out of the equation that they couldn't protect themselves anymore. And, the, and, that, and remember, that's the check and balance in the Constitution that's meant to keep it from centralizing. And then the second is the delegation of the legislative power to these agencies that can make so many laws. And until first the one and then the other thing happened, there was not a tendency to centralization. Well, I'm going to stand with Mr. Yates, though. He, he predicts this. He says, and if they may do it, these central powers, it is pretty certain they will. For it will be found that the power retained by individual states, small as it is, will be a cog upon the wheels of the government of the United States. So what you just said is, is what he predicted. Now, he was early. I, I admit that. He predict the causes of it, right? He's wrong about that. And then he also did not, he in fact definitely does not predict the massive success of the American Constitution. For luckily, years. luckily we have to take a break because I'm being routed here. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Larry Arn, I'll, I'll get mercy during the break. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. It's another non-stop action-packed information blitz. Kind of makes you tingle, doesn't it? Hang on. Hugh Hewitt will be right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn. And I'm arguing uphill here because Larry spends basically his waking hours talking about the Federalist Paper. Last week, I interviewed Smug, Comfortably Smug, and Josh Holmes, who are the fastest-rising podcasters. And uh, they believe in making conservatism fun. And I have to play for you what they said about the Federalist Papers. Cut number 17 from two weeks ago when Comfortably Smug and Josh Holmes were my guests. Do we not? We don't have cut number 17. Well, they made fun of the Federalist Papers, Larry. They, First of oh, all, here we go. it's like beyond humbling to even mention the same sentence with yourself or, or Rush Limbaugh. We're clearly not there. But 
But we do like to have fun. And I think the guiding principle of our podcast at the beginning was we're not going to scream at you and we're not going to read you the Federalist Papers, right? We're going to have a, we're going to have a good time. We're going to contextualize this and, the, and what's happening based on what's happening in your life and how politics affects you. And, then, you know, we can play some games and sing some songs while we're at it. We're a variety program. Wait a minute. Did you just <laughs> slander the Federalist Papers? I, 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 well, Smug has for our April Fool's episode. He actually did read the federal paper. Oh, oh, you're killing me. Larry Arn is he's dying. Larry just had a stroke. He's listening. He's had a stroke. We're talking about the Federalist Papers tomorrow. Smug, tell me it's not true. So you get the sense. They are saying that the Federalist Papers is is um, not compatible with entertainment or not or enjoyment. And I think they're wrong. Well, first of all, your clip contains the central contradiction inside the clip. They say that they're going to contextualize things to going on today, and they say they're not going to read the Federalist Papers. That's a logical contradiction. I will point that out to them because you're right. I wish you'd been with me when they <laughs> assaulted us that way. Um, now, I, I want to go back and defend Yates one more time. He said, uh, he's quoting Montesquieu, it is natural to a republic to have only a small territory, otherwise it cannot long subsist. In a large republic, there are men of large fortunes and consequently of less moderation. There are trusts too great to be placed in any single subject. Those are the robber barons, and now it's Silicon Valley. Now it's, it's the ballot boxes being placed out by the billionaires. Now it's the Coca-Cola company telling us that Georgia is a is a Jim Crow 2.0, they were, he was right to worry about concentrations of wealth. Well, first of all, you know, if you would actually read the Federalist Papers, um, <laughs> they, they talk about that argument extensively. And that are, that the anti-Federalist argument is drawn from Montesquieu. And the first thing they point out is each of the states is a multiple of the size that Montesquieu said was the maximum size. <laughs> yes, that's so, true. <laughs> so that doesn't work, right? <laughs> but then, you know, the basic argument of the anti-federalist is that local is more to be trusted. But that's being, you know, first of all, the federalist argument is sublime and better. Its argument is every human delegation of power must be checked at every level because people will go wrong. And so what the Federalists are arguing for is an elaboration of the constitutional system that, first of all, permits there to be laws across the land so it can be united and defended. And then, second of all, inside that new structure, there would be additional checks and balances that would control the use of power. And that's what they did. That's what happens in the Constitution. And, you know, you, you love Federalist 10, and that's good, but it's only the first step in an argument that unfolds throughout, and especially in 39 and uh, 49 and 51. That's next week, yeah. And in yeah. 49, and are we going to do that next week? We're going to do 1 and 10 in the next two segments, and then we're going to do those three next week. Okay. Because that, that's, that's yeah. But But just, you know, if you just position the argument, Right? Like, right now, if you live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you know, your business is, is shut, and there's nobody to help you. And, and there's a, you know, it's liberal town, right? 
And that means that the governor can do whatever she wants and destroy people's lives. And then most of the people, however, who, you know, do such things as work for the University of Michigan, they're going to put up signs saying, thank you, Governor Whitmer, right? That means local government is not any help in that place. That's true. Well, we'll be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. We're coming to the Federalist next on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn and I have begun on the Federalist Papers, and we're going to start with number one. And the Federalist Papers themselves are an extraordinary achievement. Now the American people are coming to know them through the musical Hamilton, in which Hamilton is uh, is portrayed after his heroism, after the convention, as frenetic, frenetically at work at them, just working, 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 writing, writing, writing. And Larry, it really is, Dr. Arnie, it really is an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, it is. And, you know, just, uh, I, I'm gonna, I, I will now say, because I've destroyed you, I want to say a word for the anti-federalist, and that is the fact that these people could work together and did ultimately trust each other, even in the making of the Constitution, is evident in the, what we talked about last week, the Northwest Ordinance and the Land Ordinance of 1785. They're all after the same thing. This is an argument about how to get it. And and so just remember, and they... they Federalists are made better by the anti-federalists because those are pretty serious people. Although, and, and here's another thing: all of the major anti-federalists and the federalists wrote under pseudonyms, and they all picked uh, Romans who resisted Caesarism. <laughs> so, so you know, they all thought they were they all thought that they were doing the best that should be done. Well, not all of them. I, apparently, some of the anti-federalists were just corrupt as can be. And, and Patrick Henry is not a noble man at this point in his career. Uh, I recall Madison's correspondence with Jefferson complaining about Henry and Jefferson writing back, then we shall just have to pray that he dies. Uh, yeah. but, but, but some of them, I think this Yates guy, who I did not know much about until this. Well, see, most of the anti-federalists come from the big states, and they have huge interests at stake. You know, little states kind of need some union to protect them. Uh, but, you know, goods flow in and out of especially New York and Virginia and Massachusetts more freely. And they, they're in a position to put tariffs on other states, and they were doing that under the Articles of Confederation. So, it, 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 you know, I very much think the Federalists have much the better of the argument. And it is, by the way, the greatest act of Constitution-making in human history. And, and it is and, it is spread, and it is endured. And I am with the Federalists in the end. I'm just saying I worry that where we are now is forgetting what the Federalist argument uh, was we should, about we should liberty. talk about the causes of that, right? Because just remember, there is a 150-year-old elite conspiracy against the principles of the United States. Yes. And because the principles are under attack, and it's simple to say what it is, the principle of America is, if you look at a being, you can see what its nature is, and you can see, for example, if it's a human being. And if it's a human being, then they all have the same rights. 
That's the claim, right? That's the whole, all of America proceeds from that idea. That's why the land is surveyed and it becomes readily tradable by anybody, right? It affects everything. But the new idea is, no, we're on a vast forever evolution. And the science of history, historicism, has revealed that that's true. And everything is changed. But because we're the first beings to know it, we can get control of the process of, of change. And <clears throat> to quote what well, one of Hillary Clinton's teachers used to say, we can change what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. And now I want to I want to put in here, use the word conspiracy. And I know how legacy media works. They'll seize on that and say we're conspiracy theorists. No, they're not hiding this. They do hide motive and belief, but they don't hide the organization. They don't hide their ambition. They do not hide what AOC you know, puts on YouTube every day. But from the beginning, what they have hidden is a, is a deeply anti-egalitarian point of view. They that, really that, do not believe and it. The point is, it's a movement, and it's politically skillful, and it doesn't reveal itself fully. And that's the problem, right? And, and, uh, and so, I mean, a movement. And 150 years old, there's no small secret cabal that could sustain such a thing as that. These ideas are powerful and appealing, and they constitute a great force, right? So you've got to give them their due. Uh, but, and, and the point is, the simple point to understand, the first point to understand is what is the distinction between this modern thing and this original thing? What, what is the difference here? And until you can demarcate that clearly, you can't choose what you like. And that's the point. You know, we don't get to, you know, you and I are not under the illusion that we get to tell people what to think. We just get to tell them things, and then they can figure out what to think. Well, that's what Hamilton says in number one. He says, for in politics as in religion... It is equally absurd to aim at making prophetites by fire and sword. Heresies in either can rarely be cured by persecution. We have to persuade people. That's why we do the Hillsdale. That we have to persuade people to go back to Hamilton and Madison and their understanding that we want to sit under our fig tree and enjoy our branches alone and left alone by this avaricious for authority constantly grabbing gang and by that i think i'm referring to the ideology that you call 150 years old i didn't think its pedigree was that old well go back to hegel right how long ago was that all right all right, uh, all right. you know it's it's uh, and one of the effects like you know i i regard this i i regard this whole debate federalist and anti-federalist as beautiful i think the federalists have the best of it but they both understand some things. And, like, uh, uh, we, we should read from the first paragraph of the Federalist One because it's some of the most famous words ever written. And, and uh, I'll read it if you want me to. Please. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are capable or not of good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Uh, 
In other words, Hamilton, out here in the wilderness, in this little country, you know, big territory, he says this is a test whether people can choose their course and govern themselves according to freedom. And this is a test for all time, he says. Uh, there was a great teacher named uh, Paul Eidelberg, taught in Claremont for a while, and he's, very, he's a very colorful teacher. And he would say, he'd read from the Anti-Federalist, and he'd say, see, these guys are small potatoes. <laughs> and he'd read that from Hamilton and say, that's just a different kind of thing, you know? And that's true, right? In other words, Hamilton and the Federalist and George Washington have a grand vision, right? That not only is this thing going to be good, it's going to be great. And that's, you know, that's, and then to see this claim that a good thing can be great, that's beautiful. Or a great uh-huh. thing can be good, which is harder, right? And so that's, that, that's the appeal of these guys. But they're also practical politicians. I, I, what I like about number one, Hamilton says, among the most formidable of the obstacles which the new Constitution will have to encounter may readily be distinguished by the obvious interest of a certain class of men in every state to resist all changes which may hazard a diminution of power, emolument, and consequence of the offices they hold. In other words, the, the, the gloves are off. They're going to they're gonna fight... Uh, they're going to fight for the Constitution as need be, right? I am, I am impressed with his candor and the fact that they're going to win. They just like they won in Philadelphia. They had to carry that. Now, they didn't carry George Mason, but they carried most everybody else. They had to. They had to win. They understand you've got to win these arguments. It's not enough to have a good intention. Yeah, and and but d- don't underestimate. Uh, the extent to which they came together, right? Because the big thing, one of the, well, not the big thing, but one of the big things that Hamilton and Madison wanted, they didn't get it, right? And much to the credit of the Union, and much to the credit of the Constitution, because one of the reasons it lasted, because go back to our talk about the Northwest Ordinance and the Land Ordinance, those are massive acts in the dis- distribution of power out, Right? And that's one reason why America has worked. But uh, the Constitution itself is like that. They give, you can't pass a law under the original Constitution, not a single one, unless a body controlled by the state legislatures, uh, not the states, the state legislatures say so. And, and you know, they didn't. One of the reasons that that, that, that the direct election of senators, the, the amendment, amendment was passed, was that it wasn't really controversial. The federal government was not that important at the time. Right. It was also right. true that often state legislatures didn't even send any senators, because who cares, right? But the, the legislation was proposed by a bunch of people who meant to make the federal government the driving engine of America. And, they and that was a concerted pur- purpose. Now, we move to Federalist 10, because uh, I want a little bit of this segment and the last segment. Um, the key line in it, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. Uh, meaning, we're going to have 
mediocrity and sometimes bad men and women at the helm. Um, what does Madison propose to do about it? I just want you to, to take the floor as you might. Uh, do you teach the Federalists often in seminar, Dr. Arn? Uh, I have many times. I haven't been doing it lately because i got graduates to teach now, so my life has been uh, consumed. I, I teach undergraduates and graduates, and I, I haven't taught the Constitution course in about five years, but I've taught it many times. So how do you teach them? In what order do you teach them the well, Federalists? You, start, you can't you read know, them all. In other words, the Federalist unfolds in an order, and the early papers are first steps in an argument. And, and, and the, you know, Federalist 10 and Federalist 9 and Federalist 10, especially in a partnership, they introduce the problem of, of controlling power, which you must assemble in order to have government. And in Federalist 9, they make the argument that because it's going to be big and spread out, it'll be harder for there to be conspiracies. And, and also that, uh, that uh, uh, you'll have to talk out loud. That's one of Madison's main points all the way through, although Hamilton wrote Federalist 9. Federalist 10 makes the point that people get bound up into groups, interest groups, and friends, and people who think alike, and people who have the same interests, especially, and they form factions. And you've got to keep those factions from becoming a majority. Hold that thought. We'll be right back to finish off today's Hillsdale Dialogue on Federalist 10. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. America and remember Mother's Day is this Sunday. Make sure that you say hello to your moms and your grandmas and your young moms in your life. Dr. Arn will do that to uh, Mrs. Arn, I'm sure, uh, and to his daughter and to every mom out there. Thank you. I hope we've given you a good start. Now, Federalist 10, uh, just take off, Dr. Arn, because this is this is elegant. Well, then he says that uh, one of the ways to control a faction he defines precisely as a uh, a group, whether majority or minority, who have an interest that they advocate against the, and remember, this is a very important phrase, the permanent and aggregate interest of the nation. That means that although what it looks like in Federalist 10 is that they propose just a lot of factions canceling each other out, that phrase supplies, uh, supplies the end of the canceling out that flourishes through the rest of the Federalist Papers. That is, you need a government that will serve the permanent and aggregate interest of the society. And, and the first step toward getting that is to make it almost impossible. There's so many factions, none of them can get a majority. And that's the argument of Federalist 10. And, and then he, he makes another profound statement in the middle of it that becomes, again, flourishes through the rest of the Federalist Papers, he says that the, uh, uh, that the uh, differences in the property we hold stems directly from the different and unequal faculties we have. And the first object of government is to protect those faculties. In other words, our exercise of our faculties to care for our lives. That's what it is to be a human being, by the way. And, and you know, to be a slave or to be so bound up in rules 
and institutions that dominate that you can't do anything, that's not fully human, right? And so he announces in those two places that this tool of the multiplicity of factions is just a, a, the first of many tools that are named to lead to these permanent and aggregate interests, which ultimately is our interest in our freedom. And, and they don't have to name what those permanent interests are, but he does know what their opposition is, and he states that a rage for paper money, for an abolition of debts, for an equal division of property, or for any other improper or wicked project will be less apt to pervade the whole body of the union than a particular member of it. What's interesting to me about that, Dr. Arn, is he, he brands that wicked. Uh, 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 he doesn't explain why. It is self-evident, as was the Declaration of Independence. It is wicked to want an equal division of property or the abolition of debt or paper money. And the thing is, an equal division of property, by his statement, that different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, that's unnatural. You can only do that by force. Yep. Right? Because if you leave things to go, you know, I mean, right now, by the way, we live in this massive society, massive movement for egalitarianism. We're going to equal everything. It's, it's no accident or surprise that that results in gazillionaires who are dominating, for example, our discourse and controlling it, right? And, and so instead, the function of the law is to give everybody a chance. It's the reason why if you want to get rid of, of predatory uh, uh, corporations, Subject them to competition. Open it up, right? And that's what trust busting was about, which has its good features. Yes, it does. Features too. And so, in other words, there, he, he, in Federalist 1 and 9 and 10 are probably the most important of the early Federalist papers. In those, there, the, the rhetorical argument is we're going to expand and complicate things. And there'll be some safety in that, whereas the anti-federalist argument is confine things to a small fa- space, and then we can watch them all the time. And and if that were the only argument of the federalist, I, th- I think they'd probably have the best of the argument. But it's also true to be more narrowly drawn than what they later articulate. Well, next week we're going to do thirty-nine. And 51, I'm going to throw in 78, though it's not in the reader, because it's the judicial power, and and Hamilton is wrong that it's the least dangerous branch. I mean, just very wrong. And then we're going to do the letters of Fabius before we move on to that leveler, Thomas Paine. Um, One minute, Dr. Arndt. I don't think this ever gets old. I think it's the best work of American uh, uh, brilliance out there. Do you agree with that? Or yeah, is the declaration? It's, uh, or? it's, you know, there are several things that are contributions to the study of politics down through the ages from America. Uh, Lincoln's speeches would have to be included. Uh, and the Federalist Papers is, is the first of them. Uh, because it, it is, you know, it's written, by the way, as 85 newspaper articles meant to get the Constitution passed in the state of New York. And historians quarrel whether it was really influential or not. Well, 
the particular book, which didn't get out that much outside New York, maybe wasn't that influential. But these are the arguments that were influential, and here they are put most coherently. And they prevailed. Thank God. Dr. Larry Arn, all things Hillsdale and Hillsdale.edu will continue next week. Talk to you on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Do you absolutely, positively need the truth? This is where you turn. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.